This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, for the final summer series episode is the ad drop ace, the maestro of the matchup, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. Happy August, the time where, I don't know, sometimes we get a little anxious that summer is slowly drawing to a close, but even more exciting Fantasy hockey season is slowly drawing to an opening, and we've been so busy, Elon. We just we funded our Kickstarter. Huge news! The the, oh the 2018-19 audio almanac is happening. We've opened full registration for Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. So much going on. What a time to be alive! It's real. It's happening, and we're gonna dive right in. So here's the plan, everybody. We've got a show today. We're gonna wrap up everything that's happened this summer. I know a lot of stuff happened. We've already done two episodes since July first, recapping all the trades and free agent signings. I've got a list of all the rest I wanted to talk about. We're gonna get through it all. That's gonna end our summer series. Next week, we're gonna do an episode about like designing a league. That's sort of preseason series, okay? Then Brian and I are gonna record our almanac. By the way. Should we mention that we are funded? We are going to be recording the world's first ever. I know you said it, Brian. I'm just repeating the world's first ever audio fantasy hockey guide or almanac, as we've decided to call it. Because like, what's, what's a guide? A little piece of paper that you you toss away uh, at the end of the day. No, no. This is going to be an almanac. It's going to be a 31 chapter volume discussing every single team in the NHL and what we think the fantasy impact will be of all of their players. So we're funded. So if you're not interested, forget about it. We're good. We didn't need you in the end. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Thank you everyone (laughs) who supported us. And we still actually have a day before the Kickstarter ends. So if you want to get in, the reason to get in now, as opposed to later is you'll get the lowest possible price. We might jack up the price by a couple bucks after tomorrow, but definitely for everyone who buys the Kickstarter, you're going to get it $15 Canadian. So check it out. Keepingcarlson.com slash guide. If you're interested in that, Brian, also, we should mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, which is another home of one of the most famous guides in the world, right? An actual huge PDF guide that breaks down and has projections, not only points, right? Projections for shots and hits and everything and like sleepers, like players who are going to bounce back, players to watch out for. It's a, it's a great guy. So you got to check it out at DauberHockey.com. This is the thing that you bring into your draft to help you when the clock comes to you and it's time to make your picks. Okay, DauberHockey.com. It's great. Check out their guide. Keepacarlson.com slash guide. That's us. 
Brian. Well, I got I still want to talk about the couple, but let's do that in a little bit. We got to get into our content here because there was a huge trade last week, something we weren't expecting to happen in the uh, end of July, but it happened. It happened. Yes, let's get into it. So Jeff Skinner got traded. Finally, there had been rumors swirling since May that Skinner was on the trade block and the Hurricanes finally made it happen on Thursday. They sent him to the Buffalo Sabres for prospect Cliff Pooh and three picks, a, a second and a third and a second. Who cares? For nothing, basically. For nothing in terms of fantasy that we care about. So Jeff Skinner's gone from the Hurricanes. He goes to the Sabres. This may seem like a poor return for Jeff Skinner, but don't forget, he's slated to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. So it's kind of like a one-year rental and then maybe the Sabres will be able to extend it. We'll have to see. But last year was definitely a down year for Skinner. He is 26 years old, so he should be in his prime, but he put up a sad 24 goals and 25 assists for only 49 points in 82 games. This was after he popped 37 goals and 26 assists for 63 points the year earlier. He went from 63 points to 49. All of the owners who drafted him early, hoping for another 37 goal, 60 plus point season, hugely disappointed. He still helped in shots. He actually was pretty close to his shots from last year, but a lot fewer of them went in. My knee-jerk reaction here is to say that there are a lot of reasons to expect Jeff Skinner to improve on those numbers from last year now that he's going to be a Buffalo Sabre. So I'll give you a couple of my reasons, Brian, then I'll throw to you where you could dig deep into what you think is going to happen with Jeff Skinner's fantasy value next year. But I mean, first of all... I can't, the- I can't wait to hear just because it's usually counterintuitive to hear someone say, I can't wait to see how great this player is going to do now that he's a Buffalo Sabre. I know. Generally not the, th- the thought process here. So make your best case. Yeah, I mean, things have changed. And the thing with Jeff Skinner is he was on a good team last year in Carolina. Like They score some goals. But the dude's most common line mates were Derek Ryan and Justin Williams. So he wasn't getting good players to play with at even strength. He was consistently held off the top power play. He was only getting second unit time. Now he goes to the Buffalo Sabres, where you've got to imagine he gets a crack on line one with Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhart. Like, that would be a shoot. That's, that's insane, right, to go from having a center being Derek Ryan to having your center being Jack Eichel. I mean, really, who is Jeff Skinner's competition to get that line one spot. Connor Sherry, like Evan Rodriguez, Vladimir Sabatka. I mean, come on, you'd have to assume Skinner at least gets first crack. And even if, say, Connor Sherry really clicks with Jack Eichel, so fine, Skinner then for sure gets on the second line to play with Casey Middlestad and like Kyle Ocposo, which is still much better than who we had on the Canes. And while we're at it, why not a power play one role with, say, Eichel, Reinhardt, and one of Ocposo or Middlestad? I feel like Jeff Skinner might even get a shot there. So I think those are the reasons. Deployment is my reason why I think Skinner should be better next year as a saver rather than he was last year as a Hurricanes. Brian, what do you say? Can we for sure expect Skinner to be better than the 25-goal, 50-point guy from last season? Are we expecting a repeat of the 37-goal and 63-point guy from two seasons ago? Maybe even better than that? I might need you to pour some cold water on me, Brian, but I'm pretty excited about Skinner's prospects. Lucky for you, I've got my bucket of cold water right next to my podcasting chair here that I'm ready. I'm ready to splash some of it, not all of it. I love your enthusiasm for Jeff Skinner. Things were not going well in Carolina. He needed somewhere new where he could flourish. Buffalo could be the place. But before we figure out what he's going to do, let's remind ourselves exactly who Jeff Skinner is. You keep mentioning this 63-point season that Skinner had in 2016-17, but we need to put that into greater context. You're saying, he was great, 63 points, then he fell off last year. Can he get back to 63 points? This is like the story of Jeff Skinner's career, not just the last two years. In 2016-17, when Skinner got 63 points, it's what we all had dreamed of. 
for him. But anyone who drafted him in 1718, thinking that was a slam dunk, was not looking at the bigger picture. I'm looking at you, Elon. Jeff Skinner has never been a consistent 60-point player, despite the expectations set in his outstanding rookie season when he had 31 goals, 63 points. Outside of that rookie year, right after that, his full season point paces have been 56, 47, 62, 32, 51, 64, 49. So Jeff Skinner, all over the map, ranging between 32 and 64 in an 82-game point pace. His average career point pace is 54 points. Median point pace is 51. And that just emphasizes how wild Jeff Skinner's production swings have been, anywhere from 32 to 64 points. So just to bring it back, if you were jacked about 63 points from Jeff Skinner in 2016-17, cool, but a 49-point season following it up? should not have been a massive surprise, nor was it the first time that Skinner has disappointed. It was just another disappointment in a long line of false starts for Jeff Skinner rather than this sudden collapse from a stud 65-point player that happened only because the team buried him deployment-wise. Now, that all said, it did feel pretty apparent that Carolina was ready to move on from Jeff Skinner with the way that they deployed him last year. And now he goes to a Buffalo team that really has no other choice but to throw him into big deployment and see what happens. Getting top power play time should, in theory, be enough to boost him into 60-point territory because you can draw a pretty straight line between Skinner's best seasons and his greatest shares of power play ice time. The exception being his rookie season when he actually saw uh, not as much power play time, but career-high individual and on-ice shooting percentages. So what do we see in Buffalo from Jeff Skinner? Well, I expect, as you mentioned, Elon, his even strength production should go up a bit if he gets to play with Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhardt on the top line. Last couple of years, he's had between 36 and 42 even strength points. He'll get a couple more playing with Jack Eichel for sure. And then you can hope for Skinner to get a chance to pick up at least 15 points if he's on the top power play all season long. Now that he's in Buffalo, doesn't feel like his floor is like, oh, it's Jeff Skinner. I have to be worried that he's going to flame out and give me 45 points. It feels like his floor is at 55 now based on how much the Sabres are going to need him, which To you, it might sound obvious, especially with how excited you were about him, Elon, but based on his history, uh, it's never really felt like 55 points is the automatic floor. It's been like the hope, and then the upside has always been there, and that upside in Buffalo, that's what really shoots up with the trade. I'll get with you on the sky maybe being the limit for Skinner. Like, 60 seems doable, and if he gets rolling, you wonder just how high he can go from there. Like, I'm not going to rule out a 70-point season the way I would have ruled it out had he stayed in Carolina, but I'm saying it's not a sure 100% thing just yet. Let's see him, you know, put up 60 for a couple years or at least just see how well he can click on that top line. Because if he plays on the second line, Elon, with Casey Middlesat, that's still not, I mean, it's an upgrade probably over his Carolina situation, but not a huge one. Well, that depends on what you think about Casey Middlestat, right? Let me blow you away in a little bit with an analogy that I came up with. But first, okay, let's take a look at how this affects the rest of the Sabres here. So I'm with you, right? Like, I think 55 points is a nice floor for Skinner. And I, I could see why you don't want to say that his floor is, like, any higher than that. But, like, I do think that the sky is pretty high for him. I could see 70 points if everything shakes well. Plus, he's so great in a league that counts shots. I love my shots. Every All the patrons know that that's one of my favorite categories to load up on in the draft. I feel like it just bleeds into lots of other 
success. Anyways, I'd imagine this has got to be great news for Jack Eichel, right? He has a new top line left wing to potentially click with. So if it if it works out with Skinner, great. If it doesn't work out with Skinner, so fine. Like he wasn't going to play with him anyways before this trade. So it could only be good for Eichel. Can't be bad. Then I'd imagine that's great for Sam Reinhardt, who also gets a better potential linemate on the top line. Also, you'd have to think this is good for Casey Middlestat, who all indications point to him being the second line center next year. And even if Skinner goes into line one, then Skinner gets the next best guy who would have been on line one if Skinner didn't come. You're following here, me here, right? A hundred percent, but I could not repeat what you said if I tried. Okay. I, I guess Skinner could bump Casey Middlestat off the top power play. Like maybe that was going to be Middlestat's spot and maybe he loses it to Skinner. So that could be a reason to think it hurts him. But I think overall, pretty good for him. In fact, Brian, I, okay, here's my analogy I want to throw at you. Okay. Could this year's Buffalo Sabres be last year's New York Islanders. I'm going to give you a player-by-player player comparison. I feel like it's closer than you might think just when you first hear me throwing this out, okay? But think of this. Jack Eichel, he's the John Tavares, right? Easy. Top-line center. Jeff Skinner then becomes the Anders Lee as a high-shooting potential 40-goal scorer that makes Sam Reinhardt the Josh Bailey to former first-round picks who kind of disappointed at first but went on amazing runs last year, and maybe Reinhardt could join Josh Bailey in the 70-point club. Like, Bailey did it for his first time last year. Maybe Reinhardt could do it this year. Okay, that would make Casey Middlestat. Who would it make him? That makes him Matt Barzil, okay? So all of a sudden, you've got, you've got a rookie second liner, and you might be saying, what are you? You're crazy. No way Middlestat is as good as Barzil. Barzil had 85 points last year. Do you really think he's going to hit 85, like Middlestat? And then I'll say to you, like, did you think Barzil was going to hit 85 points last year? No, definitely not. Plus, hey, Middlestat was drafted eighth overall in his draft in 2017. Barzil was only at 16th overall in 2015. So if anything, you should expect Middlestat to be better than Barzil. We do know that NHL GMs always get it right, and draft position always correlates to how good a player is. Good okay. point. <laughs> I'm trying my best here, okay? So that makes Kyle Ocposo the Eberly disappointing last season, just like Eberly was disappointing uh, in his year before last, when he was in Edmonton, before he came to the Islanders. Obviously, Jason Pominville is the Andrew Ladd, no question there. That's some easy. Old, some old guy that could get in the top six for a bit, but won't last. Um, okay. Sh- Connor Sherry's the Beauvillier. Young guy could end up bumping uh, Pominville from the second line at some point and maybe clicking with middle stat. Even look at the D. You've got Razzus Ristolainen. He's the long-standing top power play guy, just like Nick Letty was last year for the Islanders. And then you've got Razzus Staline coming up. He's the Ryan Pulak. He's the guy who everyone expects to eventually take over on the top power play. So there you go. Even Carter Hutton. He's the Thomas Grice, the longtime backup who's finally getting a chance to be a starter. So you've heard it here first. This year's Buffalo is last year's Islanders which means Casey Middlestat's going to get 85 points and Jeff Skinner's going to score 40 goals. Done. Wow. Mic drop. It's solved. That's it. Why even play the season after that (laughs) perfect analysis? I I don't even know. I know that I planted the seed for this whole analogy yesterday. I'm taking full credit. We were chatting and you pointed out how high one fantasy guide had Casey Middlestat projected. And my best guess was at why it was like a Barzil-like number was that maybe the projector saw, you know, Middlestad on the second line behind an elite center on the top line, at least an elite scoring center on the top line. Eichel's no Tavares, but he's still something amazing on offense. And then saw Ocposo as an Eberly. But that's, to me, where, you know, we're in trouble here. If you're hoping that Middlestad equals Barzil because he's got an elite center ahead of him and like a sort of has been, but still pushing for it, right winger. I don't see Ocposo being quite to Eberly's equal in, in helping, say, cash in on setups from Middlestat as Eberly was for Barzil. That said, 
you had a lot of fun with the analogy, probably took a little far, but I can tell you're as excited for Casey Middlestat as you are for Skinner and Darlene and like all of Buffalo. As for looking like going back to the Barzel Middlestat comparison, I mean, it's not unreasonable that you know my expertise doesn't really extend into using non-NHL experience to project NHL scoring. Prospects are not my strong suit. So I'm not really sure what differentiates uh, Middlestad and Barzil in their pre-NHL careers or how exactly to compare them. Uh, so I, I look, what I do is I look to see if there's any precedents having been set from the path that a player took to the NHL. So you look at, at Middlestad coming up in the NCAA Big Ten division. Uh, familiar names come out of the division in recent years are Kyle Connor, JT Comfer, Tyler Mott, uh, Zach Wierenski, Zach Hyman, Dylan Larkin, uh, Ryan Dezingle, and that's probably the best of the lot. There are a handful of bottom six and AHL guys in there too, as are you could probably say about Comfer and Mate also. Uh, you also know that I'm not, as I mentioned, going to wholly buy into your argument that Middlestat is going to be as good as Barzil because he was drafted eight spots earlier. Uh, there is wisdom, like there's growing wisdom in, in the scouting, you know, in the GM pack of and scouts and NHL knowledge just because uh, scouts can cover more ground and potentially gain more insight than ever before. So that is worth something. I'm still not sure that I'm convinced that just based on draft position, I mean, pedigree is certainly important. I'm excited for Casey Middlestat season. Like normally when a new rookie comes in, I'm like, yeah, 40 points is a successful rookie season. I would love to see 55 from Middlestat. Although if Sherry and Ocposo are his line mates, I think he's going to have to do a whole lot of lifting. Okay, that's right. I didn't expect you actually to dig too much into the silly rant that I I went on, but all very good points. I'm not going to project Casey Middlestat to get 85 points next year for sure. Like when we do our almanac and we come up with our projection, I might try to push you higher than the 55. I might be trying to push you for 60, but no, I'm I'm probably not going to be going for 85. Okay, and Brian, finally, does this Skinner trade make you more interested in Carter Hutton by any chance for next season? We talked about him a couple episodes ago, how he signed with the team and you weren't too high on him then, but now like all of a sudden they've got Jeff Skinner, uh, they've drafted Rasmus Stalin, Casey Middlestat. We've just discussed he might make an impact. So if they can all match their billing, perhaps even if Carter Hutton could just be average, he'll end up picking up a few more wins than his likely draft position would project. Should I say sleeper alert for Carter <laughs> Hutton? And like, especially by the way, if your league count saves, like a couple of years ago, Robin Leonard was pretty good on the Sabres. Like he wasn't amazing, but he was actually pretty valuable in leagues that count saves just because the Sabres let in so many shots. I just want to put it out there that Carter Hutton might be someone that you might want to grab. Like obviously not reach for him, but if he's falling really far, he's the starter on the team most likely. And they're looking better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way you say it, it sounds so simple to get excited about Buffalo and and get excited about Carter Hutton. And right now there are a lot of people's dark horse picks to, to sneak into the playoffs as a bubble team. And if they're, they're in, there's probably two divisions in the NHL in which they can manage to do that. The Atlantic is one of those divisions. So maybe there's a chance, but I'm also not getting so excited about Carter Hutton. Uh, Like the, the Sabres, they added Skinner, Darlene, Middlestat, uh, that could add them another couple wins. But remember, they also dealt away Ryan O'Reilly, who was an excellent player for them. And you look at the Sabres blue line, which is extra pertinent to what's going to happen to Carter Hutton this year. And it's still chock full of replacement level guys. You've got Ristolainen being the lone exception, but even he isn't necessarily a guy who can anchor a top pair in the NHL. 
Uh, and the way you said, you know, if Carter Hutton can just play average, I'm not sold on Carter Hutton just playing average. It would be really great if he can turn in average performances in the Buffalo crease, and I'm still not sure it would be enough. I could also see you're making the argument that Hutton's great if a league count saves. I could see Linus Olmark making headway and grabbing starts if Hut- if Hutton struggles, which, again, is entirely possible. So, like, Hutton could be a great value pick at the end of your draft, the same way that Robin Lehner seemed like he could have been a really great value pick. I think it was a couple years ago now, but it's not a bet that has a fantastic chance of panning out. If you get him at the right cost, absolutely. But he's not someone I'm suddenly reaching for, which I know is not what you're advocating. No, okay. And I think it was just good to talk it out so people could get a sense of what their valuation of Carter Hutton should be. By the way, when you said Buffalo only has one good defenseman, Rasmus Ristolainen, and you, of course, were also going to include Rasmus Dahlin, right? Well, we just don't know that Dahlin is someone who's ready to take ah. top pairing minutes in the end. Well, you know that he can shut down a- another team's top offensive opposition. Hey, Cam Robinson thinks so. That's good enough for me. All right. But, you know, like production and defense are two different elements. And okay. sometimes they're connected. Like someone who's amazing offensively doesn't have to play defense as much, which is a benefit unto itself. But Rasmus Dahlin is an 18 year old rookie and. Expecting an 18-year-old rookie to step in and shut down the league's best players? It's a big ask. That's a big ask. You're right. Okay. We'll we'll let time tell on that one. Okay. Let's go over to Carolina quickly. It's been like 20 minutes of the Buffalo show to start here. We used to have Carolina shows all the time over the summer. So one last time, let's go there. They lose Jeff Skinner. I feel like this doesn't seem like a huge deal since he wasn't getting great deployment last year anyway. So it's not as if he's opening up a spot that someone else can really step into and take advantage of. Like I'd imagine Aho and Toivo will have leading roles again. And the newly drafted Andrei Svechnikov will also be there in the top six doing stuff. Then you've got boring guys like Stahl and Victor Rask and Justin Williams, they'll likely be somewhere in the middle six. Perhaps the Skinner move will open up a top six spot for an incoming rookie, like say Martin Nekash, Valentin Zykov, or Warren Fogel, all guys who I've heard some buzz around. Brian, maybe could you give a quick lowdown on these guys and let us know if you have any interest in any of these Carolina prospects, if, if, if you'd have any interest in picking any of them as a flyer late in a draft in a one-year league? Yeah, I do have some interest. So Svechnikov, to start off with, would have to beat out Justin Williams for a top six spot. Nescash would have to beat out Victor Rask. Both of those scenarios seem possible, though a lot depends on the approach Carolina wants to take towards either one's development. They're both young. They're both just entering the league. Don't know if they're ready for full-time top six minutes. Don't know if Carolina wants them playing in the bottom six and working their way up to the top six, or if they'd rather just get them a full year of development in the AHL. And then uh, the name that stands out the most is Valentin Zykov. Uh, He seems to have the best chance to step into a top six role after grabbing seven points in 10 games in his NHL cup of coffee towards the end of last season. Warren Fogle, also in the picture, as is Lucas Walmark, who've both had reasonable success and gotten call-ups uh, from uh, from their work with the Canes AHL farm team in Charlotte. But Zykov, if I'm looking at one prospect to get excited about because of Skinner's move away, that's the player who has the best chance to walk into a newly open spot in good deployment. All right, Brad, I'm not sure I heard you correctly there. Did you say that Andrei Svechnikov would have to beat out Justin Williams for a top six spot? Did I hear that right? Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I said. Oh, I feel like that shouldn't be too hard, but I guess we'll see. We'll see. Well, there, there are teams that, you know, enjoy their veteran leadership, which Justin Williams provides. Uh, Carolina is going to have uh, top six that probably could use someone who is uh, above the age of, uh, well, I guess there's Jordan Stahl. But aside from him, it's a pretty young group. I think uh, Tara Vinen, of all the guys we're considering right now, might be the oldest at 23 years old. 
I feel like some teams might want uh, to have an older presence in there, you know, coach the youngins, whether it's the right or wrong strategy is a whole other discussion. And also, as I mentioned, the development path could be a thing. Like if they don't want Svechnikov, uh, you know, getting his first reps in, in in a top six role that they think is over his head. He's still young, just coming out of the draft. Maybe, maybe they want to work on him first. All right. So again, another young player, another rookie for next year, just like Darlene. We'll let time tell and we'll come back and see who sounded smart, who sounded dumb. Okay. Let's go to another team. So we did a trade from a couple of days ago. Now let's go all the way back to June 22nd when Washington made a trade. They traded their backup goalie for the past three seasons, Philip Grubauer to the Colorado Avalanche in exchange for a pick and also agreeing to take on Brooks Orpik. And then the Avalanche actually bought out Brooks Orpik. He had a very expensive contract. And then the Caps actually signed him back for a much cheaper $1 million. So Good, good on the Washington. They still got to keep Brooks Orpik, who I guess they like for a lot cheaper. But of course, the key player here is Philip Grubauer, who finds himself in a great position to be a starting goalie on the abs. If not next season, then for sure in a couple, since Sammy Varlamov is going to be an unrestricted free agent next year. But Pulis need to figure out what to do for next season, right? Like, I'm finding it very hard to predict who, if either, of the Colorado goalies is going to be the starter. We've got Philip Grubauer, who's had a great career so far in Washington. He's put up a 923 save percentage in 101 career games. Now, so not the smallest of sample size. At 923 save percentage, that was also a save percentage last year. And of course, we all remember how he even stole the starting job from Braden Holpe for a stretch right before the playoffs. We've seen a lot of longish time backups transition into being starters with Cam Talbot and Antti Ranta being recent examples. And both of those worked out pretty well. Talbot, I guess, didn't do as well last year. But we've also seen it go the other way, right? We saw Scott Darling last year. He had all the buzz going to last season and he completely flamed out so Grubauer is a very intriguing option as someone who's had a great career now he finally gets a chance to get the spotlight because he wasn't going to take it for very long from Braden Holpe okay but we then we have Semyon Varlamov who's been on the Avalanche for a while he actually had a really nice season himself last year he put up a 920 save percentage he helped the Avalanche get into the playoffs hard to imagine Varlamov being a backup next year but then it's not as hard to imagine him spending some time on the IR as his groin has been causing him trouble for many seasons now. So you'd imagine there's a couple ways where Philip Grubauer ends up getting a lot of starts. So Brian, if you were drafting for next season only, who would you rather have between the two Colorado goalies? And in a keeper league, also as a separate question, because then we know Philip Grubauer, I think they're priming him to be the starter in the long run. Like how good is Philip Grubauer in a keeper league as the incumbent starting goalie on what looks to be an up and coming team? Yeah, so this is a tough one trying to to gauge which of these goalies you want to pick. If you want the Colorado Avalanche starter, it's a real toss-up going into camp. We don't have any information about who they're going to lean towards. And here's where the situation stands. You've got Philip Grubauer, who's been really fantastic as a backup, and at one point had stolen the job from Braden Holtby last year. And then you've got Semyon Varlamov, whose flashes of brilliance have single-handedly powered Colorado into the playoffs before, but for whom consistency has never been a strong suit. So let's just take a look at the numbers from last year and notice that they were both really great. So it doesn't really help us make a decision just there. Grubauer, in limited minutes, ended up leading all goalies in goals saved above average per 60 minutes last season. Varlamov was sixth in the league himself in this stat. They ranked similarly if you looked at their delta save percentage, which takes their expected save percentage and tells you if they performed above or below it and by how much. 
But for one of these guys, it's unfamiliar territory to have had such a successful season, and that's Semyon Varlamov. He's historically been on the wrong side of his expected save percentage as a starter, save for that superhuman run that he put in in 2013-14, and this most recent season where he finished seventh in the league in Delta save percentage, whereas Grubauer has stopped a higher than expected amount of pucks in each of the last two seasons and was not too far away from doing it the year before that as well. So my feeling... If I'm trying to figure out who the better goalie is, my feeling is that it's Grubauer. Uh, That doesn't mean I'm drafting him with the expectation that the Avalanche uh, think that he's the better goalie and is their outright number one. My guess is the Avs are going to say their starter is a decision they're going to make in training camp and then continue to say after they make that decision that they're going to go with whoever gives them a better chance to win without committing one way or another, which makes valuing Grubauer and Varlamov really, really tricky. I think Varlamov has a slight edge at being opening night starter as the incumbent and also someone who already has familiarity with the team in front of him and the management team around him. But if Grubauer can steal Braden Holtby's job, then why not? Semyon Varlamov, although Holtby was terrible, but Varlamov has been terrible too. Bottom line, in a one-year setup, I'd expect Grubauer and Varlamov to be splitting time. I'd guess that Varlamov starts more in the first half of the season and then Grubauer starts more often in the second half of the season as he does emerge as the better goaltender, assuming, of course, that Varlamov regresses as expected. In a long-term keeper scenario, it sure does seem as Grubauer would be the wise guy to keep. As you mentioned, Elon, he seems to be the guy that Colorado is looking a little further ahead with, and they'd be wise to. He's three and a half years younger than Semyon Varlamov and has uh, really a better career performance over the last few years than Varlamov as well. So I'm going with Grubauer eventually becoming the starter. So in a keeper league, great value there. In a one year, it's almost like you're going to have to cuff them if you want to have the goaltender who starts for Colorado. Yeah, actually, I really like the suggestion that you gave either was on a recent Patreon or on a recent episode about drafting goalie handcuffs because I've always thought I don't really like the idea of drafting a handcuff just because you have to use two of your roster spots just to get one team's goalie starts. But it might be a good idea to just, you, if you could get them late enough in your draft, maybe you could grab Varlamov and Grubauer with the hopes that one of them will emerge as the starter a couple weeks in and then you could just drop the other one or trade the other one or something and then have the starting goalie in Colorado because they do look like an up-and-coming team. Something to think about but yeah it's really hard to predict which one of them is going to get the most starts next year also brian over on washington who becomes the caps backup now is it phoenix copley they have this prospect Ilya samsonov but i read on roto world that he's likely going to be starting the ahl next year so i guess copley is the guy grubauer has been one of the most viable backups to own in fantasy the past few seasons could you see copley being similarly valuable how about we get started with a phoenix copley fun fact he's from north pole alaska Like, that's the name of the city, North Pole. Uh, The 26-year-old had a rough year in the AHL last season after having been pretty solid in all his time before that with Hershey and Chicago. That said, a weak AHL save percentage, as I think we've mentioned on the show before, especially for a developing goalie, uh, can sometimes indicate them being asked uh, to make a tweak or trying to make some tweak in their game, and that would obviously affect their save percentage, even though they're trying to improve their game long term. So we don't have to read into it so much. I'm very interested to see what Copley offers in a backup role. And lucky for him, he gets to play behind the defending Stanley Cup champions. So it's not possible for me to know if he's quite as good as Philip Grubauer. But the way that you may have wanted the Washington backup goalie in the past, the way you wanted Grubauer even before we knew he was any good, you may want Copley as well for the same reason. Also keep in mind that Braden Holtby's contract is going to expire in two years. It'll be after his age 30 season 
in 2019-20. So you have to think the Capitals are going to want to know what they have in Copley by the time that happens. And that hopefully means 20 starts a year. You might you might want them just to, to throw in. Great for a spot start, but probably not worth drafting because Holtby remains a workhorse. I mean, Holtby remains a workhorse. I, I know when you say it, it makes sense. But at the same time, last year, they won the cup with Holtby having rested down the stretch and Grubauer getting a lot of starts. And maybe that's what helped Holtby, you know, get his mind in place and get his body healthy to go on this cup run. So maybe Washington's learned from last year that maybe you don't want to play Holtby so, so much. You want to keep him rested for the playoffs. I think that might be a reason also for Copley to get a few more starts. So yeah, it's tough to draft him. I don't think you need to. I don't think he's going to be drafted in a lot of leagues unless it's the type of league where backups are being drafted. But once backups are starting to get taken, he might be someone you want to grab. But okay, uh, speaking of the Caps, we haven't yet discussed them signing John Carlson to an eight-year contract extension for $8 million a year. So a huge payday for John Carlson after being one of the key pieces leading the Caps to that Stanley Cup. Remember a couple of years ago when they brought in Kevin Shattenkirk to tape over the top power play duties because they didn't seem to think that Carlson could cut it? Obviously, Carlson, 68 points last season, 32 of which were on the power play, put an end to that concern, and Washington decided to sign him long-term for big money. So, Brian, I know we already discussed this on the Patreon cast. And, and like, by the way, I should mention, we did a whole hour and a half show just a couple of days ago for the patrons. And you can get in on that. If you want to hear this show that we, we talked about uh, John Carlson, we talked about uh, Duncan Keith. We talked about a whole bunch of guys. I, I dropped a whole list of goalie rankings. If anyone's interested. So yeah, you can check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron. We still have our promotion going, even though it says on the page that you have to be $5 to get access to all of our bonus content. You can sign up now for a buck and then you can get access to everything. Though that's going to change in September. Okay. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, John Carlson. We discussed him on the Patreon cast, but can you briefly recap how confident you are in Carlson being able to remain a 65-plus point guy next year after never really coming close to that number previously? All right, before I do, I want everyone to just take a minute and think about where they think. Where, where do you think I'm going to come out on this? Just take a minute, make your little prediction. And the answer is... I'm confident that Carlson can repeat it. So congratulations if you got it right. If you got it wrong, I wouldn't blame you because I generally uh, say it's not going to happen. You're but generally the wet blanket. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. I just Sveshnikov and Darlene on this episode. I wanted to draw special attention to the point where I'm not a wet blanket, where I'm celebrating John Carlson's season and saying, hey, the sky isn't going to fall. We're going to be good. When we talked about it on the patron cast last week, my main point was that John Carlson has been a sneakily steady producer for the last while, and the last season 68-point performance was not completely out of the blue. Carlson has now paced for 55 points or more in three of the last four seasons, with that Shattenkirk one being the exception. But 68 points is, of course, a long way from 55 points. So how did he get all the way up to 68? Uh, he did it by being the guy on the Capitals power play with the capital a T-H-E. It's not a very exciting word to capitalize, but Carlson saw 77% of all available power play minutes for blue liners last season. And that's way more than he's ever seen in terms of his power play role. Carlson had never seen more than 63% share of his team's power play minutes before. And he saw as little as 39% not so long ago, back in 2014-15, which was of course Mike Green's last year as a capital. Uh, Carlson, absolutely made the most of his new 77% share of power play time, scoring 33 power play points with pretty sustainable percentages supporting those power play points to boot. Carlson also set a career high in shots on goal with 237 on the year. That was fueled by other career highs and shot and shot attempt rates. So give John Carlson that much power play time and he can make his way up towards 68 points once again. Hot blanket. 
<laughs> You're the hot blanket today. Uh, I think that he had 32 points on the power play last year, not 33. But that's a very small correction. <laughs> Maybe it was 33 special teams points, Brian. But let, let's move on from that, okay? <laughs> One more signing that the Capitals made was they signed Tom Wilson to a big six-year, five-plus-million-per-year-dollar deal. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, Tom Wilson was okay last year. He put up 35 points in 78 games. Most of those points came while he was on the top line with Ovechkin and Kuznetsov. So it was a great spot for him. I guess he took advantage. He, of course, followed up the regular season with a tremendous playoffs where he scored 15 points in 21 games. I, another piece that helped the Caps take that cup. And I guess they reward those pieces handsomely. Does this contract make you think that Tom Wilson will be given lots of opportunities to play on line one in the future? And if so, how many points should we expect him to give us out of that role? Like if he is the top line guy playing with Ovechkin and Kuznetsov, you have to imagine he could put up some points. And if you say anything close to even like 45 points, I feel like he becomes super valuable in hits leagues where he is regularly among the league leaders in hits. So the Caps do have a new head coach in Todd Reardon. So perhaps he won't agree with Barry Trotz that Wilson is a top line guy. But just give me your sense. How valuable is Tom Wilson? Is he going to stay on the top line? And if he does stay there, how many points can we expect him to give us? What do you mean? Like he might be able to get 45 points if he plays with on the top line with like Ovechkin, Baxter, and Kuznetsov. He did that for at least three quarters of the last year, and he finished with 35 points. Now, uh, Washington shouldn't be playing him according to what his contract is, uh, but we did get a window into how valuable Washington finds Tom Wilson, and that's not to say they won't play him uh, to reflect that valuation. Although if they're smart, they'll keep their minds open. I don't think a new coach is going to really have an impact here. I I think the new coach was in place by the time they signed the contract, there must've been conversations and a plan in place. So I'm not worried about it. My inclination from the contract that Washington gave Tom Wilson knows to think that they think whatever Wilson did in the playoffs and through the year is who he can continue to be probably specifically the playoffs. And in that case, The Caps will keep Wilson in that first line spot so long as he proves them to be right. And what will it take for him to prove them right? Uh, I don't know, another 35 points. And by the way, 35 points for him, big deal. That shattered his previous career high by nine points. And I'm not expecting Tom Wilson to suddenly improve any either. We're not watching a power forward slowly rounding into form here. We're just watching a big often violent guy getting minutes with two of the best producers in the NHL and still barely managing to do anything with them. I would say, hey, look at what happened to guys like David Clarkson as a cautionary tale, but Tom Wilson's high watermark isn't even close to being a David Clarkson's high watermark. So yeah, I figure Tom Wilson begins on line one and the bar isn't set so high for him to stay there. So maybe he hangs in, but there's certainly a decent chance that if he you know, goes on a 20 point pace, which would be very difficult on the top line, although I think he's capable of it. Uh, If that happens, he could still find his way out of that spot by the midway point of the season. Wow, okay. So uh, that hot blanket is gone. It is the wet blanket once again for Tom Wilson. Sounds like you're not a fan. I mean, yeah, those 35 points last year, he wasn't on the top line all year long. You said three quarters of the year. We'd have to go back and check the exact numbers. I feel like, by the way, I didn't say I think he's going to get 45 points, Brian. I just said that if you say anything close to 45 points, that would make him super valuable in uh, Bangers and Mash League. He's probably even still very valuable in a Bangers and Mash League, even if he's only like a 40-point guy, just because if he gives you a point every couple of games, plus all of those hits that could be valuable something to watch right if he's on the top line like you say it's going to be hard not to get some points i feel like 40 points is pretty much a given if he plays every single game of the year on the top line the question is if he could actually hold that spot all year long uh 
cool. You hate Tom Wilson. Good to know. I guess why not? Right. He, he like is violent. Like you say, he gets lots of suspensions and penalties. So probably Ready for penalty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We normally don't talk about PIMS on keeping Carlson. I think everyone who's in a PIMS league knows that you probably want to get Tom Wilson. Though He's not going to give you a lot of PIMS if he's suspended. And that you probably want to get your league to change its format so it doesn't count PIMS. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Uh, so since we were talking about Grubauer getting traded, let's continue with goalie signings. There was a lot of goalie movement. A lot of teams attempted to upgrade their goalie situation over the summer. So that's many backups that moved around. So let's run through all the changes. And Brian, we could get your take on if you see any of these guys being fantasy relevant next season. Okay, so let's start in Detroit, where Varlamov's backup from last season, Jonathan Bernier, landed. He signed a three-year contract for $9 million. Jonathan Bernier was decent enough. Last year, he put up a 9-13 save percentage in 37 games. This was after a 9-15 save percentage showing the year before for the Anaheim Ducks. Now, Bernier probably has his best shot at being a starter since back when he was on the lease, as he only has the 34-year-old Jimmy Howard in his way. And Howard wasn't great last year. He wasn't terrible, but he ended up with a 9-10 save percentage in 60 games. So, Brian, do you think Jonathan Bernier has what it takes to keep up his league average save percentage on a Detroit Red Wings team whose decor is made up of the likes of Mike Green, Danny DeKaiser, Trevor Daly, Jonathan Erickson, Nicholas Cronwall? Like, Bernier, sure, he put up okay numbers last year on Colorado might be a little harder here on Detroit and also I guess the other question is do you think Jimmy Howard will be able to hold off Jonathan Bernier just like he did Pater Morazic over the last couple of seasons or is this Bernier's job again three-year deal so obviously uh, Detroit sees something in him I love how high is setting the bar does Jonathan Bernier have what it takes to keep up his league average save percentage which is really all you can ask of Jonathan Bernier yeah. essentially career backup just just to, just to point it out, league average is good, right? That means that half of the league is is worse than you and half is better. There aren't that many goalies in the NHL. I feel like a lot of teams would kill to have a league average goalie available to them. Just ask the Buffalo Sabres or the Carolina Hurricanes or the New York Islanders. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. For sure. And this actually seems like an opportune time to say, like, league average isn't, all things aren't equal for every team, right? For some teams, it's more likely that a, a goaltender will be able to play league average. And on some teams, it's less likely for a goalie to be able to meet league average. So there are team factors, which is what, when I brought up Delta save percentage and expected save percentage up earlier in the show, and I'm about to again, uh, that's what those stats try and capture. Uh, how a goalie did according to their context, not just looking at the raw, did they meet the league average? Although it is a good rough benchmark to be using. Uh, so Jonathan Bernier specifically, he's played at least 39 and at most 58 games in each of his last five years. And the only one of those in which he demonstrated himself to be above replacement level was back in 2013-14, which was his first season as a starter with Toronto. Since then, Jonathan Bernier has generally been about what you could hope for from your backup goaltender. Jimmy Howard, on the other hand, has been within about the same range in terms of games played, but has been doing it for longer, of course. This is going to be Howard's 10th season as a full-time NHL goalie, and his track record has been pretty good. He's posted an above-average expected save percentage in five of his first seven seasons in the league, but uh, now Jimmy Howard has been below his expected save percentage for the last couple, but not as far below replacement as Jonathan Bernier has been. So I still see Jimmy Howard as the guy to beat in Detroit. The one thing that Bernier does have on Jimmy Howard is four years of youth, which could mean that we see like a 1A, 1B type split rather than a straight up number one, straight up number two. But between the two, if it is a 1A, 1B split or a one and two split, Jimmy Howard should be the 1A or number one. 
Wow, very interesting, right? Just because Bernie just signed a three-year deal, nine million dollars, so it's not not nothing. I, I'm sure they'll give him a shot, but I guess you're saying Jimmy Howard has been better in the past, and you expect him to continue to be better. And this Detroit team might not be like as terrible as people think. Like they were pretty busy in free agency this summer. They brought back Thomas Vanek for a one-year deal. They re-signed Mike Green for another couple of years. Maybe that wasn't the smartest, but we'll get into him in a second. Uh, so the 34-year-old Thomas Vanek actually had a really solid season last year. He put up 56 points in 80 games on the Blue Jackets and the Canucks. He was also pretty decent way back when he was on Detroit. He spent half a season there in 2016, and he put up 38 points in 48 games for the Red Wings, which would have been a 65-point pace. So, Brian, do you see Thomas Vanek as someone who can be fantasy-relevant again next year? Again, 56 points last year. That's definitely fantasy-relevant. Can he do that again with the Detroit Red Wings for a full season? I do think that Thomas Vanek oh. can be fantasy relevant next year. I could see him being like looking at him being like an old guy with an elite past in a Detroit jersey surrounded by not much talent. I, like I'm not saying he's Henrik Zetterberg this year, but it's not so far from it. Thomas Vanek had 56 points last year and still managed to score 15 power play points despite seeing less than a 40% share of Vancouver's power play minutes. He was regularly on the second unit in Vancouver, and then he was on Columbus's second unit for most of his time there. Uh, so Vanek can be a, a great sneaky pick in the later rounds as a guy who could find his way onto perhaps a top line, perhaps a top power play unit, who is still talented enough to do these things, especially without much other depth in Detroit. I guess if I'm looking at the left side in Detroit, Andreas Athanasiu is the only other possible top line Red Wing on the left side to compete with Thomas Vanek. Of course, there's also just an applicator who we know Detroit loves to play in that spot for whatever reason. But if you have the choice between the two, although we've been saying this for so many years, one thing, if you want to find a, a nitpick about Thomas Vanek, his IPP has been at 80% for two years in a row. That's high. His has always been high. It's always been 70% or more. He's always been very involved in creating offense when he's on the ice. Maybe he's been a little overly involved in the last couple of years to get him up to, say, his 56-point total last year. But with some better deployment, I think he can find his way back there. I like your optimism. Uh, once again, you're sort of discounting a potential rookie, right? Philip Zadina could end up overtaking Vanek in the desktop. And Tyler Bertuzzi. Yeah, so there are some guys who can challenge. I know it's really hard to project players who we haven't seen play many NHL games or no NHL games in the case of Zadina. Yeah, these are all like pre-camp projections. We'll see what happens as camp takes shape and and try and figure out how to work those rookies into the thing. But I think generally the rule of thumb, especially for somebody just drafted, is that they're not going to play in the NHL the following season. There's always a very, very limited number of players who can step right into an NHL role. So I, I always... I always play on the side of not expecting them to do it, but you're right. In the picture, we're thinking about. Yeah, Zadna, by the way, latest Roto World. I, I, I feel like when I talked to Cam on the episode a, a few weeks ago, he said he thinks Zadna could make the team for the Red Wings. According to his latest Roto World, Detroit coach Jeff Blashill wants to see how Philip Zadna does against NHL competition. And he said it's difficult to gauge a player's NHL readiness, readiness <laughs> at a development camp, and that's a fair point. Okay, so basically they're going to try This is what I said. Yeah, he's going to have a shot. Right. So it's better than some players, right, who are you could almost guarantee aren't going to be making the team next year. Uh, OK, so they also signed Mike Green talking about the Red Wings here to a two year deal. Mike Green, always injured, hasn't broken 40 points as a Red Wing. He's paced for it or close to it in a couple of years, but he's always injured. But he, he had neck surgery in March. He's expected to be fine for training camp. We'll see how long he can hold up 
What are you expecting from Mike Green for next season? He had 25 points in 66 games last year. So that's a 31-point pace. Is there any reason to expect him to be better than that next year? He'll, he's like still the top power play defenseman, right? Somehow they never find someone else to overtake him, even though he's not really able to put up too many points. Maybe next year's the year. Like Detroit has a lot of good young players. Eventually, you'd have to expect that whoever is manning that top power play should be able to do better than a 31-point pace. Yeah, I want to believe that Mike Green can do better. I don't have any real reason to, even though I looked for some. The one place where Mike Green did get the short end of the stick last season was on his power play shooting percentage. He scored just one goal on 28 shots, but 28 shots isn't a ton of shot volume. So even if you grant him like his average power play shooting percentage for the two years before last season, which would take him to about 12.5% as a shooter, that only adds another two or three goals, which still doesn't get him quite up to 40 points. Uh, along with having this time, of course. The bright side of Mike Green, though, is that half point per game seems like a pretty steady point pace for him. So you can start him around 40 points in your projections and hope that he gets bounces to help him nab a couple extra points from here or there. Uh, Also remember, though, that Mike Green missed 16 games last season, which was more than usual, but still not terribly uncharacteristic from a guy who usually misses at least around 10 games every year. So you wash out maybe some extra points, nice bounces, and missing 10 games, and you're still likely looking at Mike Green as a 35 to 40 point guy. Yeah, that makes sense, though. Like I said, I do see some potential for Detroit overall. I don't know if Mike Green's the guy cashing in on it, but I came up with this crazy thing. This is a much worse analogy than the one I gave you earlier on in the show with Buffalo this year being last year's Islanders. But Brian, like I was trying to think, like last year going into the season, everyone thought Colorado was going to be terrible, right? It was like there was like no reason to, like they had Nathan McKinnon, who everyone knew like McKinnon's great, but like how good can he really do being on such a terrible team like the Avalanche? A lot of, like Tyson Barry, same thing, right? So like a lot of people just discounted the guys in the draft and they fell very far and then in the end like Nathan McKinnon put up like a 110 point pace Miko Ranton rode along to a point per game Tyson Barry was insane so like it, there ended up being a lot of valuable uh, options in Colorado and a lot of them were like really good value picks in drafts because everyone felt so bad about them and I kind of feel like Detroit could be I'm not saying they will be right so this is like if there is a team that's going to be this year's Colorado a team where no one wants to draft their players because you know they're such a, a bad team and you don't expect them to score many goals but then that team could end up producing players that really do well I think Detroit's that team and like hear me out Dylan Larkin who is probably going to be the top line center next year he had a pretty decent year last year he ended the season with 63 points plus only eight of those points were on the power play which is pretty low for a 60 plus point guy so if if somehow Detroit could get their power play going and Dylan Larkin goes from getting like eight power play points to like what does usually the top power play point getter on a team get in a season like 20 50 yeah you can hope like an average top power play guy gets about 18 to 22 power play points someone else can fact check that though tweet us at keeping carlson if you find a different answer yeah obviously like that wasn't the case on detroit last year but like yeah you like so i could see if if dylan larkin does the same as he did last year at even strength and then adds like 15 power play points all of a sudden we've got a piper game guy so then you have him then you've got anthony mantha who could be like the rantanen right like someone who we all know is good just needs someone good to play with and who knows what could happen there with him you've got zadina he could like make the team and he'd be the tyson jost in my analogy which i know isn't that exciting considering how he did last year but just nyquist could be the landis now i'm 
now I'm sort of spiraling. Just yeah. to say, don't forget about these Detroit guys. Like, I know Henrik Zetterberg's status is unclear for next season. He may or may not play. And that's, like, something to consider. Maybe that's something good, though, for Dylan Larkin. Because then he just becomes the guy, him and Mantha, like, like make a line happen next year. They bring someone along with them. And who knows? I, I feel like there's some value there. I'll bet you that Dylan Larkin is going to fall in a lot of drafts. And I feel like I'd be happy to maybe reach for him a little bit. He even hits, which is nice. If your league counts hits, Dylan Larkin had 76 hits in 82 games last year. And like I said, also put up a lot of points. So just something to keep in mind. Just a theory I'm bouncing around in my head. Like, don't get mad at me if Detroit ends up sucking next year, just like they <laughs> probably will. Yeah, I think the problem with your theory is that Detroit, for for who they do have, there's still, there's not a Tyson Barry that's hard to find. Tyson Barry is excellent in what he does. There's not an Ethan McKinnon. There's not a Miko Rantanen. Those are like the three key pieces all I don't see comparable. Dylan Larkin is probably the closest thing to any of them. Uh, and you know what? Like, it's not segue. Like, Mike Green, Anthony Mantha, Gustav Nyquist, Andres Athanasiu, maybe Franz Nielsen, maybe Tyler Batuzzi, maybe Zadina, Thomas Vonick. There's a lot of guys who could maybe potentially have some fantasy value. You don't want to write them off, but I feel like it's a lot of guys who you probably don't need to reach for in most drafts. Watch list them, keep an eye on them. But I, I, I don't know, Elon, that I can totally get with your like the next Colorado theory. I think the one absolutely draft like must draft player on Detroit is Dylan Larkin. Whereas last year I still would have said there are at least three must draft ads in McKinnon, Rantanen and Barry. Okay. Yeah, sure. And again, the whole point of this theory is that if they're the next Colorado, that means most people aren't going to agree. Like you're not supposed to agree. Cause the point is I'm thinking not many people are going to want to draft these guys. And they're going to think they're going to be terrible. Just something to keep in mind. I'm going to throw Mantha in there. Also, you're saying like only Larkin is like the must said, draft. Oh, sorry. Like as a must draft, I think I definitely want Mantha. Like there's no way I'm letting him go undrafted in a league just because he'll be top line, top power play, play with Larkin, who I think is really good. But we'll see. This is like a fun thing we can keep track of as the season goes on. I'd love to see them get like another defenseman, like a better defense. Like why can't Justin Falk, why can't Carolina trade Justin Falk to Detroit? I feel like that might be a really nice fit. But anyway, now I am totally speculating. So let's move on to the next goalie. Oh yeah, we were talking about goalies. Right, Bernier went to Detroit. Another goalie that moved is Cam Ward. After 13 seasons on the Hurricanes, we're finally going to see Cam Ward wearing a different jersey as a 34-year-old signed a one-year deal with the Chicago Blackhawks. You'd think that this means for sure he's going to be the backup behind Corey Crawford, but the thing is, Corey Crawford's apparently still not fully healthy. He had a press conference saying he's not healthy. He's hoping to be ready for camp. We don't know for sure, so there's a chance we could see Cam Ward get a bunch of starts next year on the Chicago Blackhawks. And Ward, like he's been bad, right, for a while. He's been putting up a sub-9-10 save percentage for a while now for the last few seasons. Last year was no different. He was a 906 guy in 43 games games with the Hurricanes. Brian, is there any reason to believe that Cam Ward can be better as a Blackhawk than he's been as a Hurricane as of late? Or is he the kind of guy that you'd maybe draft for starts, especially if news comes out closer to your fantasy draft that Corey Crawford's still not healthy? You know that Cam Ward's going to get a bunch of starts. So yeah, if your league counts like saves or you just need to have goalies that play games maybe you'd want ward but like is there any reason to expect him to not blow up your save percentage every once in a while like last year we saw chicago goalies we saw anton forsberg and jeff glass they were not reliable options if you pick them up for a spot start is there any reason to believe cam ward can be any better than those guys were so maybe cam ward is a small step above those guys but i wouldn't give him so much credit and think he's going to do a whole a whole lot more for you than get saves and and the odd win the problem is that chicago also doesn't have a very strong team in front of cam ward who is a historically weak goalie uh, you know i have been going on for a few years about how integral and underappreciated Corey crawford has been to chicago's success 
And with him about to potentially miss time, uh, we're going to see, again, you mentioned Forsberg and uh, Glass and Barubi. I feel like there was at least one, maybe two other names that were thrown in the mix at some point last year. We're going to see how how much Chicago needs Corey Crawford if he does miss time. I, I, they don't have much on D. Like, they really don't. They have uh, Duncan Keith, who's great. Uh, and then, I don't know, Connor Murphy, Eric Gustafson, they're g- probably going to be the ones who need to step up especially with Jordan Osterley having moved on. There's just not a lot there in Chicago as the last line or the second line or even the first line of defense. Okay, fair. So yeah, it's really hard to expect any goalie that's not Corey Crawford to be able to be good on that team next year. I agree with you. I would be staying away from Cam Ward, even if news comes out that Corey Crawford's going to miss time. Okay, next. Oh, by the way, Brian, the chat room is telling us we totally messed up with Philip Zadina's name. Zadina. I should know this. That's my wife's name. Like minus the za. Wow. You can't mess that up again. It's spelled the same way too. Lasagna za. Pizza za. It's an SNL thing. I, I don't know. No one's going to laugh at my stupid. It was a funny sketch, but uh, okay. Uh, what are we talking about? Goalies, 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 goalies. Uh, Dallas decided not to resign Kari Lettinen to back up Ben Bishop next season. Instead, they went out and got Anton Kudobin for two years at $2.5 million per year. Seems fair. I don't know. Kudon was a decent enough backup for the Bruins last year. He put up a 913 save percentage in 31 games. There was even a short, short stretch early on where he was some stealing some starts from Tuka Rask. I know you're going to bring up how I thought that Kudobin was going to like steal the job and everyone should drop Tuka Rask. I was just saying people should pick up Kudobin just because for the for that short stretch, he was getting the starts. But anyways, whatever. That was in the past. I'll let you say what you, what you have to say. But Kudobin... Anyways, he seems like a decent enough goalie. Brian, you know that I'm not super confident in Ben Bishop. I'm not sure if you like Ben Bishop more than I do. I think you might, which is which is rare, right, for players. I feel like normally I'm the one who likes the players more. Uh, but yeah, Bishop, he had an okay 916 save percentage last year in 53 games. Definitely not meeting his big contract that he got with Dallas. He missed a lot of time at the end of the season with a knee injury. He, he always misses time. He's Ben Bishop. He's injury prone. He's like not that great in my opinion. I'm pegging You hate Ben Bishop. Kind of. I don't hate him. I, I wouldn't draft him, or he'd have to fall pretty far in my draft for me to take him. Uh, I'm pegging Kudobin as a decent backup to bet on in the deep league, as he's on a good team. I could see him stealing some starts from Bishop, do either because Bishop struggles or because Bishop's injured for a while. So, so what do you think? Again, I'm not saying Kudobin's like a guy you have to rush to draft, but I might even take Kudobin over Phoenix Copley if my draft was getting that deep. Well, if you're looking for a starter to potentially steal starts from a weak number one. Yeah, Bishop sort of fits the bill as somebody who could be potentially usurped, at least in the short term. Although, Elon, I like I really don't think he's... I, I know you find him unreliable, and he has been unreliable. I know you find him injury-prone, and he has been injury-prone. But he's still, compared to a lot of the guys we talk about and who you might like a little more, he's not so bad. And that's why I'm not like so sold on, on Anton Kudobin as you are. Another reason why I'm not so sold is uh, in seven years of backup or 1B duty for Anton Kudobin, uh, last season represented just the second time that Kudobin had posted an ex- a save percentage above his expected save percentage. By the way, I keep mentioning the set, Corsica.hockey is where you can find it. Uh, and beyond Kudobin's own personal struggles, Dallas I don't know if I should say like Chicago, but they are pretty weak on defense. They've got that Lindell Klingberg top pairing if they do play them together, and then not a whole lot. So there's not. Right, there's- I have to. I have to. I'm sorry. Like just because there's a lot of people who love prospects that will be yelling at their front. Like what about Miro Heiskanen? He's supposed to be so amazing. So what I'm throwing it out there. He's supposed to be so amazing. He's not amazing yet. 
He's 18 yeah, years he old. He we'll is see amazing. He, he's he, not yet. He hasn't shown it in the NHL. That's what you mean to say. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you clarified that. There's Stefan Johns. They have Julius Honka. Steven, I'm pretty sure is his name. Okay, sure. Roman Polak. <laughs> they signed Roman Polak. That's cool. Mark Mathot. Yeah. 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 They have a lot of really just underwhelming defenders. Maybe Miro Heiskanen is going to be the next coming of, uh, I don't know, someone. but uh, Or the Didn't first Dallas, coming of, of who we Dallas... all believe Heiskanen to be. But I'm just saying, mm-hmm. beyond at this point. Trade... I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm talking at the same time. I just wanted to throw it out there. Didn't Dallas like, not want to trade Heiskanen for Carlson? Yeah. And that, like, that's a mistake that like, <laughs> I don't think that's like a, I think that's a huge mistake regardless of who Heiskanen turns out to be. In any case, uh, they have two proven defenders and then four, and then a mix. The other four spots are going to be either unproven or underwhelming. Not to say someone can't step up and be impressive there, but that's just where things stand and the challenge that rests, uh, that lies ahead for the Dallas goaltender. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Again, don't go crazy over uh, Anton Kudobin, but I think he might just be pretty pretty okay in a league where people are drafting backups. Uh, Brian, I apologize for interrupting you before. That was really rude. You are the genius, and I'm the question asker, and I've got to be more deferential, and I'm going to be now with my next question, okay? The Stars, not only did they sign Anton Kudobin, they also re-signed Valerie Nishushkin. He's coming back from the KHL. He signed a two-year deal, $5.9 million dollars. So that's pretty good. Over two years, almost three million a year. Nishushkin was Dallas's tenth overall pick back in 2013, but he left for the KHL in 2016 as he wasn't happy with the role he was getting with the team. He was getting low minutes. He wasn't getting a top six spot in his previous two years with CSKA Moscow in the KHL. He produced 24 points in 36 games and then 27 points in 50 games. So nothing to write home about. Like he's been, looks like he's been decent, but definitely not a superstar over in the KHL. Now he comes back to the NHL. He comes back to Dallas. I normally wouldn't be too excited, except this is a Dallas team that definitely has room in their top six to play with their all-star elite players. Like in, of course, Bannon Sagan, like, uh, like last year, Devin Shore was getting top line and top power play time at times so why not Valerie Nachushkin right so I feel like he could end up being a good sleeper for next year but at the same time he could also be what he was before when he was on Dallas which was someone that people got really excited about whenever he got a shot in the top six and then he never really panned out so what do you think for next year are you thinking of drafting Valerie Nachushkin or are you going to let someone else take the risk on him I am thinking of drafting Valerie Nachushkin why not in fact I want Nachushkin to play on a redemptive duo with Jason Spezza and watch them both just explode and bloom and blossom into the players that they could have been all along. Nachushkin was a good, sorry, I should clarify. Spezza was like buried by Ken Hitchcock last year, probably had more in him than was uh, offered the opportunity to show before that he's done well when given deployment. Okay. uh, Back to Nachushkin. Nachushkin was a good NHLer who just wasn't favored by Lindy Ruff. And we all saw what happened according to things Lindy Ruff did and didn't favor Probably not the best judge of a situation based on how things went in Dallas with him. Uh, you may look back if you're trying to figure out, oh, should I draft this Nishushkin guy? I don't really remember watching him. By the way, he was really fun to watch. Uh, you may look back and see some ugly point totals in Nishushkin's career stats, but you'll also notice that he rarely saw power play time. He also averaged fewer than 14 minutes a game in his last season in Dallas. He's still just 23 years old and could have an entire NHL career ahead of him. I still have hope for the guy just as I did before he went out to Russia. The trouble for Nichushkin, of course, is if he doesn't get Tyler Sagan as a centerman, I do want to believe that Spezza could work really nicely as a setup man, as an alternative to Sagan, but I don't know 
that uh, Spezza and Nishushkin would be up to that task, nor if Dallas would have a hard time having to consequently place Radek Faxa, who they seem to really like, on their third line. But Nishushkin seems to make a lot of sense as an option to at least get a look on what will be a really great top power play unit. And should he be given the deployment, I see a really great late rounds pick. Yeah, late round pick. And if he doesn't get picked, definitely add him to your watch list. Pay close attention to Nichushkin during training camp and then at the start of the year for his deployment. We'll obviously bring him up on the podcast if things are looking good for him. Okay, so Boston, they didn't resign Anton Kudobin because they instead decided to go and get Yaroslav Halak. And they got him to take over as the backup on a two-year, $2.75 million per year deal. Halak had his worst season in a while last year. He ended up with only a 908 save percentage in 54 games for the Islanders. He'd been at 914 save percentage or higher for the previous four seasons and that even includes 2016-17 where he was sent to the minors for a bit still overall he was above 914 now he goes to the Bruins and he's got to be one of the best spot start options out there in leagues where backups like him don't get drafted right Boston's a great team Halak should be a decent enough goalie but Brian like is there any aside from being a great spot start option when he does play is there any chance that Halak could challenge Tuka Rask for starts next season or do you see Halak purely as the backup in Boston no chance to like take over the job or be like a 1b So I surprised myself with my answer to this question. Uh, I took a look, tried to compare the two goalies, what they've been doing lately between Halak and Rask. And if if you go by goal saved above average for 60 minutes, which, by the way, uh, if anyone follows Charting Hockey on Twitter, real name Sean Tierney, he has some great visits available. You can follow a link from his Twitter account uh, to see this stat that I'm mentioning a lot, goal saved above average for 60 minutes. Uh, So going by that stat, Yaroslav Halak, was the better goalie last season. You look at who Rask compared to. He compared to guys like Peter Mrazek and Kerry Lutnin last Ew. year. Yeah, when Yaroslav Halak compared to guys like Mike Smith and Brian Elliott. So not the most reliable guys, but still like better company than Tuka Rask. Halak has also posted a save percentage above his expected number for four consecutive years now, which is incredible at this point in his career. Rask, in the meantime posted his first save percentage above what was expected for the first time last season since all the way back in 2013-14, and he just barely managed to do that as well. So yeah, there's a pretty good chance that Halak gets some games in here, gets to show that he might be the better goalie at both these career junctures. Hudobin did challenge Rask for a while last year to the point that, Elon, here's where I'm going to mention it, you thought the job had been stolen, and Hudobin didn't quite get all the way there. Uh, even though it was one of his best ever seasons. But I think that Halak could be up to a similar challenge should he be able to hold his 33-year-old body together. Uh, Rask will be in his age 31 season, which is probably the one advantage he has over Halak. But here's my hot take. Yaroslav Halak, a better goalie next year than Tuka Rask. Come on. I don't think that's going to happen. But okay, it looks like your numbers from last year. If anything, when you're saying that Rask was among Pieter Murazik in this stat, what is it, goal saved above average? Yeah, per 60 minutes. No, oh, it just makes so it's me... a great stat. I mean, okay, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of great stuff going to that stat, but like Tuka Rask seemed, for just from seeing the box scores day in and day out, seemed good, but obviously you're saying that he was getting easy shots. But like, there's some reason why that stat said, like, what, what, yeah. what does it mean when a goalie who who's raw numbers look good but then he fared so poorly in goal saved above average what does that mean it just means that he was getting easier shots i guess yeah it means that you put another goalie in his position and that goalie won't have a hard time replicating those numbers like a replacement like an average replacement level goalie can come in and do about the same thing given the context of the difficulty of the shots that he's facing okay and so wait but you're saying 
What's your hot take here? Are you actually advising people like to not draft Tuka Rask and say like a tier three of goalies because you think that Halak is going to steal the job from him? I think you've taken my my take a, a step further. My hot take was just straight up Yaroslav Halak is a better goalie than Tuka Rask. Uh, as for how it translates into next year, I think he's probably, I think Halak is a better candidate to take Rask's job than Kudobin is a candidate to take Bishop's job. How about that? Yeah. And that's a very hot take. Do you want to? How about a bet board? I don't think either is going to happen. Halak or Kudobin. Like, so what's the bet? Because I don't think either is going to happen. So it's just like if one of them happens, then one of us wins. Yeah. And for how long do they have to take over? Like, what? Does well, it then mean we, we can over? go by games played. Just who's going to play the most games? Yeah. I would definitely take that bet that Kudobin's going to play more games than Halak, just because I think Ben Bishop's going to get injured for a while. Okay, so if a goalie is in, well, I think Ras could get injured for a while. Yeah. All right, so let's I make mean, the bet. We could say that if a goalie is injured, those games played don't count. And who's going to do the math on that and go through the... <laughs> come on. Okay, so, I'll, I'll, I'll make a little note, but it's going on the bet board. We'll think about it. I'm not sure if we've totally worked it out. We'll we'll post on the patron Facebook group what the final bet is. I think you and I need to discuss a little bit, but probably we should move forward with the show. Uh, I just feel like Tuka Rask is the for sure starting goalie in Boston. But okay, let's go to the final goalie movement I wanted to bring up. The Jets traded Steve Mason to the Habs as a salary dump just a year ago. We were expecting Steve Mason to come to be the starter on the Jets to start the year, and now he's bought out, went to the Habs, Habs bought him out, so Mason's not even on a team anymore. And we'll see. Do you think that we're done with Steve Mason? Do you think he's played his last ever NHL game, or can you see someone else taking a chance on him at some point? I still believe that he could use another chance to show that he might have something left in the tank, might have something left to show. I don't know what team is going to be ready to do that. Just remember, like, a goalie's career is... If Jonathan Bernier just signed a three-year, $9 million deal, and we know he's not a good goalie, I feel like there's more unknown from Steve Mason that you feel you could probably get him on a cheaper contract and find out, at least. Take that gamble, a really low-stakes gamble. Uh, So hopefully a team will find it in their best interest to do that. But uh, I can't predict what they'll do. Yeah, it would be fun to see it happen. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Maybe the Sens. Like, there's teams out there with some shaky goalie situations, like Carolina with Darling and Morozik. If Carolina's looking like a good team, but like they can't get the goaltending, maybe they go out into free agency and try out Steve Mason, see what they can get. So don't forget about him completely. We'll obviously bring him up if he gets signed somewhere. So, Brian, who do you expect now to be the backup on the Jets next year? They signed Laurent Brossois from Edmonton, and they also have Eric Comrie coming up eventually. Like, probably doesn't matter, right? Hellebuck played 67 games last year. He'll probably do it again. So it's not as if you would draft the backup on Winnipeg. But out of curiosity, who do you think is going to be the backup next year? I'll go Laurent Boissois. Because like you said, Elon, it barely even matters. Hellebuck will be the workhorse. And I'm guessing that the Jets would rather Eric Comrie keep playing games and work on his game and improve his game rather than sit on the bench and watch Hellebuck play 65 times or more in the year. Okay, so we still have some more to get to, believe it or not. I told you, it was going to be a jam-packed show. I've got some injuries and outjuries, a few more free agent signings. Brian, why don't we take a stop here, take a breath, and talk about, we're talking about drafting, how fun drafting is. We're starting to look into next season, when you'll take different guys, and we've got a league. By the way, I don't know if you guys know this, any new listeners, Brian and I have been running a league for the past three seasons, and I would say it's the most fun league I've ever been in, and it is called the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, and we're going into our fourth season now, and we are really excited to announce that registration is open, and we would love for you to take a part in it. So this is, we've got a whole setup going. There's 
tier one, tier two. We've got different divisions. You sign up, you start at the bottom, you work your way up. I'm not going to get into all the calculations of how you get into what tier. Basically, you start at the bottom, you win your division, you get to climb up. You're competing against the best fantasy players out there. You're competing against people who listen and support a fantasy hockey podcast. You know you're going to have really fun competition. There's going to be fun trash talk. There's going to be like Brian and I are going to be really hands-on commissioners to make sure the league is fun and fair for everyone so we'll get into more next week because we're going to be talking about league design but i just wanted to throw it out there that if you are interested in joining the couple it's free for patrons of the podcast so it's free and it's not free right like when you sign up to be a patron of keeping carlson we throw you a bunch of perks you can sign up for five dollars a month less than a cup of you buy brian or i a beer once a month to thank us for these shows and we give you Access to our patron-only Facebook group where we're going in advising on any fantasy hockey questions during the season. We're like discussing game night threads. It's a lot of fun being in the Facebook group and a great place to go get advice from really smart people. We do a monthly patron cast like I was talking about before. Every month we take any questions the patrons throw at us. Dave asked us about what's the best superpower to have between flying or invisibility. We went, we had to go into it because we promised we'd answer every question from the patrons. I sang a Michael Jackson riff because that was asked of me. Plus we also discussed a lot of fantasy hockey so that's a fun show once a month for the patrons and you get access to the cupful this like amazing league that you can climb your way up one day be the tier one ultimate champion dethrone brian who is actually the rating champion right now so i don't know you could ask if the league is rigged or not but you could talk to the other people who are in tier <laughs> one brian did earn it so check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron if i'm just gonna before you wrap up elon underrated perk you get access to our show notes too so if you find like you missed something or you want to like go back and remember what we said about a certain player you can find all the notes we used to prepare when talking oh, about yeah. that player and we stick like reasonably closely to our script also so you can reread that have access to that i think that's one of the better perks so there you go you, you get it also check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron once you sign up on Patreon, we're going to send you a link to get into the Facebook group. The Facebook group has a link to register for the Cupful. Sign up deadline for the Cupful. I believe it's September 7th. I have to check it. Sometime in September. We'll we'll get into it. Give you specific dates. Uh, the draft for most divisions. If you sign up, you're likely going to be drafting on Sunday, September 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So if you could make that draft, sign up. It'll be fun. Trust me. And if you can't make that draft, hey, we might be able to accommodate another draft time or you could always auto draft and then take on the fun challenge of trying to build your team through free agency and trade. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Brian, how about we get back to the rest of the content for the show? Yes. Yes. Back to the content. Injuries and outjuries. Shea Weber is good. Again, this is like news from over the past like three months. So I might be throwing stuff out at you where you're like, I knew this for so long, but we have to discuss it and break it down. That's what we do. Shea Weber, he's going to be out five to six months after undergoing knee surgery. We might not see him back until 2019. So just a reminder, by the way, Weber was really good last year for the 26 games he did play at 16 points in 26 games before getting hurt. He also took 75 shots. So that's like three shots a game. He threw 66 hits. He blocked 59 shots. Again, in in 26 games so he was a multi-category stud so if your league has ir spots it might be a really savvy move to draft shea weber late in your draft no one's thinking of getting him because he's going to be injured for so long who knows it's the habs he might never come back this might end up being a wasted pick or he might come back just in time for your playoff run if you're in a head-to-head league you know as long as you're confident in your skills to get into the playoffs maybe like you don't come in third place you come in fourth place because you could have drafted some good guy late in the draft and said you took shea weber who sat in your ir all year but then you make the playoffs all of a sudden you have this stud defenseman coming into your lineup and helping push you over the top so don't forget shea weber come draft day another reminder 
Jeff Petrie scored 33 points in 55 games after Weber got hurt last year. And Petrie, of course, took over as the top power play and top pairing defenseman. That's a 49-point pace. Plus, Petrie was solid for peripherals as well. So, Brian, do you think Petrie can continue that pace next year while Weber is out? Or was something unsustainable there? Because that makes him really valuable for early next season and maybe all season. Because who knows how long Weber will actually be out. It would be a very savvy move to try and grab Weber late in your drafts. I wonder, like, this is ridiculous because Montreal has bungled injury situations so often, but I almost wonder if they, like, really just set the bar really low for his return. And I'm like, yeah, maybe he'll be back in December. And there's a chance he'll be back, like, boom, December 1st, back in the lineup. I wouldn't bank on it. It's just a random thought I have. Um, But last year, there are some pulleys, and we made the suggestion on our show like, go ahead, grab Ryan Ellis late in your draft, and uh, and that way you have dibs on him for when he's healthy. Trust yourself that you can work through whatever else is happening through the rest of the season to get your team still to the playoffs or keep them in a competitive position. And then it's like getting a free player, like with uh, however many months are left in the year. And anyone who did that with Ryan Ellis last year, he was so helpful down the stretch. Shea Weber could do the same thing. Even in full-year leagues, there are points in your drafts, if they're deep enough, where... Uh, say 60 or 55 games of Shea Weber are going to beat 75 or 80 games of Joe Schmo. So just make sure you're aware of that point in your draft. Okay, so there is our Habs talk for the week. Let's move on from them because we've done a lot of Habs talk over the summer. So we've got some good news and bad news out of Anaheim recently. The bad news is Ryan Kessler's status remains unclear for next season. He's dealing with a hip injury back on May 25th. Elliot Friedman dropped the news on Twitter that Kessler could end up missing all of next season. Since then, Kessler is saying he's hoping he'll be able to play. So we don't know. Maybe Kessler will play. Maybe he won't. If he doesn't play, this would be helpful to Adam Henrique, right? He got a contract extension with the Ducks, five years, $29 million. So obviously the Ducks see him as someone that's going to, if not next year, then eventually take over in a prominent role from Ryan Kessler. Henrik was solid after joining the Ducks last year. He put up 36 points in 57 games for a 52-point pace. If Kessler stays out, maybe Henrik is, the, or prob- almost for sure, Henrik becomes the second-line center, maybe even gets on the top power play. So I'll ask you about him in a second. The good news out of Anaheim is that Patrick Eves is looking like he'll be back for the start of next season. And Patrick Eves, like people who are new to fantasy hockey, might not even know who he is because he missed all of last season. But he might be back next year. Great to hear, of course, that he's healthy again. And now the big question becomes whether or not Eves can get his spot back on the top line in power play, because that's the spot he had when he came from Dallas a couple seasons ago, right with Ryan Getzloff. That's a great spot to be. And Eves was really good after he got traded to Anaheim at the trade deadline a couple years ago. He put up 11 goals and 14 points in 20 games. So more than a half goal per game. Probably he wouldn't be able to keep that up. But still, obviously, he was able to really contribute to his fantasy owners down the stretch in that season. Brian, I remember in our joint league that year, we picked him up as a free agent right before our finals matchup. And he was one of our key contributors to help us win the championship. It was very exciting. So Brian, do you think Patrick Eves will get his line one spot back? He'd have to bump one of Corey Perry or Ricard Raquel because it was Perry, Raquel, and Getzlaff on the top line for the end of last season. Also, my question is, do you think Patrick Eves has a chance to get on the top power play? Maybe he bumps Adam Henrique, who was there while Kessler was out. Uh, and who would you rather draft next year between Henrique and Patrick Eves? And just to make this question easier, I know Eves has winger eligibility and Henrique has center. And in some leagues, you know, it's real, a lot easier to replace a center than a winger. So you might give Eves the edge just because he's a winger. So let's say this league only has forward spots. No center, left wing or right wing. In that case, who would you prefer between Henrique and Eves? The answer between Eves and Henrique comes down to deployment. Like whichever one finds themselves on the top power play unit, that's going to be the guy you want. And at this point, 
I honestly, I can't say I know or have any inkling about who that's going to be, but I will at least take this opportunity to say that Patrick Eves can also, like Shea Weber, but in a different way, of course, be a super sneaky, good late round pick. This is the moment, by the way, if you're if you're a listener to the show and you've been listening for a while, where you pat yourself on the back and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad I never told anybody about this podcast. Uh, and then, uh, or you get mad at yourself for having let it slip at some other point, which by the way, we really appreciate it. It might not have helped you, but it helps us. Uh, anyway, back to Patrick Eves. He's going to be way off everyone's radar. I'm not even sure like where he's going to be visible in draft room rankings unless you do some serious digging and resorting during your draft, which a lot of you probably do. Uh, but sometimes you might not even find Patrick Eves that way. Last year at this time, uh, just to rewind where we were on Patrick Eves going into last season since he hasn't really played any hockey since then, uh, I was surprised at how high I was on Patrick Eves after having seen him look like a bona fide scoring threat once he finally got his first high-end deployment in the 14th season of his career. It feels like there might have been so much wasted time. Now Patrick Eves is 34 coming off an entire year on the shelf. So it might be a little harder to follow up on what he'd started since he's been sitting for so long. And I, you know, his body's probably been through a lot, but Patrick Eves is still in my mind worth taking a shot on is a guy who has potential to score 25 goals on a top line, be maybe on a top power play unit. I feel like he can bump Corey Perry. I'm not sure he can. Same thing with Adam Henrique. I think it might be close between the three of them. A lot is obviously going to depend on what signs of rust are showing on Patrick Eves in training camp, but he's absolutely someone to be following closely. I would say if I'm deciding between the two of them, you know, aside from the deployment thing, which is going to decide it, if it helps you, I would say Eves has the upside for 55 or more points, but Henrique has the floor for about 50. So decide, uh, decide which gamble you want to take. Yeah, I think that I would go with Henrik. I think Henrik even does have some upside if he's on the top power play. Eves is like a fun gamble, but he's also so injury prone. Like even before last year, he had a lot of trouble being healthy for a full season. So I feel like Eves is a guy you grab at the very end of your draft if he's available and you want to take a shot on someone who might be on a top line to start the season. But I wouldn't be like, I'd rather have Henrik. If I want, it also depends like what kind of roster spot you're filling, right? If it's a spot where you're planning on doing a lot of ad drops there and you're not planning on holding anyone unless they're really killing it, then maybe you go with Eves. But Henrik is just someone who you know is going to be a reliable guy, especially if, like I said, if, if Ryan Kessler doesn't come back and play next season. Brian, and also, you didn't answer my question about Jeff Petrie a while I didn't. back. I didn't, but it's very simple. I'm in on Jeff Petrie. Everything Petrie did last year looked steady and sustainable, both at even strength and on the power play. So as long as Weber's out, I like Petrie. I wonder, like, you know, you always have to just think of, like, what's the worst case scenario for Jeff Petrie? Probably it's that someone like Victor Mete gets some time quarterbacking the top power play unit. But assuming that Petrie gets to keep going with it, I like him for at least a half point per game while he's in that role. Yeah, that's really good for a defenseman. Maybe a little more, right? Because he had a 49-point pace last year, again, while he was in that role. It's a lot harder when Shea Weber is getting all that juicy power play time. Okay, we still have a few more signings to get to. Joe Thornton re-upped with the Sharks for a one-year deal. He was having a solid enough season last year. Obviously, he's a lot older. He's not the Joe Thornton of old, but he did have 36 points in 47 games before going down with a knee injury. There was rumors that maybe he'd be able to come back during the Sharks' playoff run, but it never ended up happening. And now Thornton 
says he thinks he'll be healthy enough to start next season. So the question now becomes, does he for sure jump back to being the top line, top power play guy on the Sharks? Or at this point, perhaps is he more of a depth guy on the Sharks roster? Because like while Thornton was gone, Joe Pavelski took over as the top line center and he seemed to click pretty well, especially once Evander Kane arrived. Pavelski, Evander Kane, and Eunice Donskoy were doing great on the top line. Of course, that was until Eunice Donskoy got injured himself and then things got to, you know, get rolled over around once again. But going into next year, like you could imagine that maybe they just want to go with Pavelski, Kane, and Donskoy again on line one. Then you have on line two, Couture and Hurdle seem to have some chemistry. They've been playing together a lot. So you'd imagine they continue to play together. So then all of a sudden you could have, like, there's one scenario where Joe Thornton's the top line center with probably like Joe Pavelski on the wing and Evander Kane. And then a second line of Couture with Hurdle and one of like Meyer or Donskoy or LeBanc. But, or you can have a whole other scenario where let's say you have Pavelski, Kane, and Donskoy on line one, Couture, Hurdle, and like someone like Meyer or LeBanc on line two. And then Joe Thornton as a depth center, centering the third line, maybe still playing on the top power play. So there's a lot of risk involved with Joe Thornton next year, and it has a lot of implications on other young players on the Sharks. So I'm really curious to know what you think is going to happen. Is the signing good for certain people, bad for certain people? What's your overall take on Joe Thornton re-upping with the Sharks for one more year? So one resource I've been using a lot over the offseason trying to see where lineups stand is uh, the aforementioned Sean Tierney at Charting Hockey on Twitter also has this viz where uh, he's taken a lot of what Scott Cullen has written about over at TSN, who's a fantastic and fantasy columnist and, and past guest on the show. Scott Cullen does these offseason game plans for each team, suggests what they might want to do in the offseason, what their lineup might look like to start 2018-19. So these sort of depth charts have all been compiled over at Charting Hockey, Sean Tierney's Tableau site with these visualizations. It's hard to talk about if you if you haven't like clicked the link before, but try clicking the link and, and, and you'll see it pretty clearly. Uh, anyway, so the, the Tierney... Cullen depth chart uh, looks like this. They have Evander Kane, Joe Thornton, Timo Meyer on the top line. Then Couture, Hurdle, and Pavelski what? on the second line. How do they come uh, up with this? Well, no, it, like this one seems like a guess. And a lot of it is guesswork at this point. Uh, I still think Thornton is a top line player. Uh, I think he can still hold it down. I could see Thornton and Pavelski working together with either Hurdle, Meyer, or Kane, depending on you know where they want each guy to play. Uh, the one who would make the most sense playing the left wing would be Evander Kane. Uh, then that would leave Couture with Hurdle and Meyer on the second line. Donskoy and LeBanc are absent from this conversation so far, so we don't know exactly where they'll fit in. A lot of moving pieces. The thing in San Jose, though, is that they can essentially have two relatively equal lines at the top of their depth chart. Their first and second lines can be tasked with pretty similar goals and aims, achievements, accomplishments. As for Joe Thornton himself, he's aged about as gracefully as any NHLer can. And Thornton also actually brought his shot rates back up last year after having had them go down to an obscenely low number the year before, even for the low-volume shooter that he is. Uh, One thing that you can't expect Thornton to repeat this season is scoring seven times on 23 power play shots. But Thornton also did watch some of his teammates struggle to convert at even strength, which washes some of that helpful variance out. So I still have him as a 55, 60 point guy. Absolutely worth drafting, though beware in shot leagues as there's no way he's going to get you many more than one and a half shots on goal per game in the best case scenario. 
Right. Okay. So yeah, we're basically, you know, it's fun to speculate. We'll obviously find out in training camp and when the season starts, how these lines shake out. This will definitely be something we'll talk about on the show. By the way, uh, we were talking about Thomas Hurdle a little bit. He also re-signed with the Sharks. He inked a four-year deal for $5.625 million per year. So hey, Tomas Hurdle making more than Joe Thornton next year. Whoever would have thought that that would happen. And Hurdle, he was good last year, 46 points in 79 games. I feel like he's a top power play spot away from being a perennial 50-plus point guy, but that might be a tough spot for him to get, especially with Joe Thornton back. So again, we'll wait and see how the deployment shakes out next year. Brian, let's go to the next team that was busy over the summer. That's the Arizona Coyotes. We already discussed the Galchenyuk Domi trade, and we also discussed the OEL extension on earlier shows. But since then, they signed Michael Grabner, and they made a trade sending a bunch of players I'd never heard of to the Chicago Blackhawks in exchange for Vinny Hinestroza, Jordan Osterley, Marion Hossa, and a pick. And of course, the whole point of this was that Arizona agreed to take on Marion Hossa's contract in exchange for getting some of these good players like Vinny Hinestroza and Jordan Osterley. Okay, so now let's take a look at the Arizona depth chart. And it's looking like a decently deep team. Like, this looks like it could be a good team. Like, although now some hypothetical Arizona lines at you, because we saw how well that went with San Jose. But you could imagine, like, Stepan with Keller and Richard Panic, who, by the way, Richard Panic, he put up 15 points in his final 20 games of the season after getting on line one in power play one last year. So he's someone to just remember exists because he was there before. Maybe he'll be there again. Then you can imagine a second line of, let's say, Galchenyuk with Grabner and Hinestroza. And then you can have a third line like Christian Dvorak, Brendan Perlini, and Christian Fisher get Dylan Strom in there somewhere if you want to bump someone. So, I mean, not world beaters, but it seems like it could be a decent team, like a decent top nine if some of these players can achieve their potential. Then on D, we've got a bunch of solid options, right? Oliver ekman Larson, Jason Demers, Jacob Chikrin, uh, Hjalmarsson, Alex Goligoski, Osterley. So it's all like names that at least we've heard, names we've discussed on Keeping Carlson before all throughout the D charts. You can't say that about a lot of teams in the NHL. So I feel like the big winner here after all of these offseason moves is got to be Antti Ranta, right? He's going to have an even better team in front of him than he did last year. And if he could play like he did last year, I can see a lot of wins coming from this Arizona squad. Maybe they are the sneaky playoff pick. Like A lot of people are talking about Buffalo this week, but I think I'd much rather bet on Arizona to get a lot of wins rather than Buffalo. But maybe their division is a whole different story. But yeah, I, I like how the Coyotes are looking for next year. I'm really liking Antti Ranta. Elon, we've liked Arizona. We've liked Antti Ranta. We're not all of a sudden uh, saying that Buffalo was better than them. I don't recall either of us even making that suggestion. Of course. Yeah, I'm just saying earlier in the show, we were talking about how people are now talking about Buffalo as a potential playoff team. And I was saying, oh, is Carter Hutton like potentially more valuable because Buffalo's made these moves? So I'm just like putting it into context and saying, I really like how Arizona's looking right now. And yeah, we've already been saying that we like Antti Ranta and we like the Coyotes for next year. But now I like him even more because they got a free Vinny Hinestroza and Jordan Osterley and Michael Grabner. And all they had to do is uh, take on Marion Hosa's contract. Great move. Savvy GMing over there in Arizona. So, okay, the question I have for you on the Coyotes, because I know you're just waiting for me to give you a question here. Who's the forward on the Coyotes that you draft after Stepan, Keller, and Galchenyuk? There's, of course, the top three forwards on the team. Is Richard Panic the obvious choice, or could you see any of these other guys being fantasy relevant next year? Richard Panic is the obvious choice, with honorable mention to Brandon Perlini and the forever-waited upon Dylan Strom. Panic is probably the only one outside of those top three forwards in Arizona who is draftable in most leagues. But uh, like the Red Wings, I'd certainly put a couple Coyotes on my watch list and watch their line combos closely to see if there's anyone I can stream in, at least for starters. Yeah, and I like Richard Panic. By the way, I'm going to throw it out there, Brian. I'd rather draft Richard Panic than Patrick Eves for next season if I'm going for a late in my huh. draft potential top line guy. Huh. Huh. 
don't know. Tweet at us at Keith and Carlson with the heavily debated. But put it on the bet board. I'll Panic, Panic versus Eves. Yeah. Battle of the season. Battle of the century. Okay. So next, we already talked about the Islanders after the Tavares signing. We really went into like how this is, is this going to affect Matt Barzell. I thought, okay, we're done now with the Islanders. We've talked about them a lot. But then like a week later, they went and signed a potentially new second line center out of the KHL named Jan Kovar to a one-year $2 million deal. So now they're forcing us to talk about the Islanders again because we were saying, oh, that second line is not looking very good. Who's even going to center that second line? Is it going to be Valtteri Filpula or Brock Nelson? Now it looks like it's probably going to be this guy, Jan Kovar. He's 28 years old. He put up 35 points in 54 KHL games last season before that he recorded over 50 points in four consecutive seasons and again like the KHL they don't play 82 games so over 50 points it's really impressive obviously it's super hard to project because we've never seen anything in the NHL out of Jan Kovar but seems like he has a solid shot like I say of being the second line center his main competition is like Brock Nelson or Valtteri Philpola so do you think Kovar is worth taking a flyer late in drafts this year like we can add him to the conversation eves versus panic versus kovar okay and could this maybe be a good thing by the way yan kovar coming into the islanders maybe this helps guys like say josh bailey or anthony bovillier like brock nelson if he plays on the wing like all these guys we said before they're not going to have a good center to play with maybe if yan kovar is good that's also good for these guys so what's your take on this signing and the fantasy upside for yan kovar so yan kovar curiously up until last year, was a point-per-game player in four years in the KHL, and even more than that, uh, even beyond that, two years in the Czech League, uh, where he played for, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but Polzin Hockey Club. I'm wondering if we're starting to sniff a hashtag Team Kovar situation here. I think he's probably the most likely candidate to center the second line in Long Island. Brock Nelson can play on his wing, and Valtteri Filipula is absolutely not up for the job of, of centering a top six line, maybe not even a bottom six line. The one thing stopping a hashtag Team Kovar train from getting rolling, though, is that on my depth chart, Kovar is flanked by Brock Nelson and Josh Bailey, both guys who have had little bits and pieces here and there. And Josh Bailey, I think I've underestimated a little too much in the past but that's a line of three guys where you don't know who is going to be the standout who's going to be the the straw that really stirs the drink on that line so that would be my concern about getting too excited about him but a good player to have very deep on your radar yeah, for sure. I guess there's also Joshua Hosang, who maybe should be in the conversation. Who knows? I'd assume he's going to make the team next year. You'd hope for his sake that he finally gets to make the team. New I'd hope Sang. Yeah, you'd hope saying. Okay, so keep him in mind as well. All right, let's go to Minnesota. They signed Matt Dumba to a five-year, $30 million contract extension. The 24-year-old Matt Dumba had a career last year. He recorded 50 points in 82 games. It was his fourth season. Before that, his career high was 34 points, so a huge jump for Dumba. Of course, a bunch of those points came at the end of the season when Jared Spurgeon was injured, and Dumba took over as the top pairing and top power play guy along with Ryan Suter. So now, going into next year, does this contract extension for Matt Dumba, big money, does that indicate to you that Dumba's going to continue to be the top power play guy moving forward, even if Jared Spurgeon is healthy? Not if, like he is apparently healthy. Apparently it's Ryan Suter, actually, who might not be healthy, but hopefully he'll be fine. But do we think Dumba can continue to get that deployment and potentially continue to be a 50-point defenseman? In my chat with Pete Jensen last episode, which by the way, I haven't mentioned it very much. We had a really great interview with Pete Jensen from NHL.com. You should definitely check it out if you haven't listened to our last episode. It was awesome. It was in my chat with Pete. He said he could see Dumba even improving on his 50-point campaign next season. He's super high on Dumba. Brian, do you concur, or do you still think there's a chance he doesn't even get the deployment? He's bumped from the top power play for Spurgeon, and he goes back to being closer to a 40-point guy or even a 35-point guy. There is a chance that Dumba does not 
get the deployment that he got last year. Jared Spurgeon was excellent in that role. The one thing Spurgeon doesn't have going for him is, yeah, he's not uh, guaranteed to be a member of the Wild as long as Matt Dumba. He's four years older as well. So maybe the Wild are looking to turn a page and and put Dumba out on that top power play uh, for a while. The thing is, it's impossible to say. But if you're drafting Matt Dumba, and you're you're thinking of just like going all in on him before getting that answer, just keep in mind that it's not a set thing. It's not 100% that he is going to quarterback or get to be a part of that top power play unit that Jared Spurgeon could still sneak in there as a key component of the top unit. Uh, so for that reason, just be wary. But if Matt Dumba does get the deployment, I think he can keep running with it the way that he did last season. Okay, so potential for 50 points again, but there's a little bit of risk there. And by the way, Jared Spurgeon, like you say, he actually also put up a 50-point pace last year or close to it, but he was just injured at the end and then Dumba got all the exposure. So maybe Spurgeon is actually going to be a really good under-the-radar pick in drafts next year. Everyone's going to be all excited about Dumba. Dumba's for sure going to go ahead of Spurgeon next year, but maybe Spurgeon ends up being the 50-point guy and Dumba does go back to being the 35-point guy. Though obviously, Pete Jensen disagreed. Okay, last thing on the show, Brian, I saved the best for last because I know you're going to want to talk about it. Mark Stone ended up signing with the Senators. Woo! But it was after arbitration and it was like a one-year deal for seven plus million. So now Mark Stone is going to be eligible to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of this season, just like Matt Duchesne, just like Eric Carlson. So the Sens could like very likely or very possibly lose all three of Stone, Duchesne, and Carlson at the end of next year and get nothing in return, which makes me think if they don't start the season very well, which I don't have a great reason to think they will, that means the Sens would be smart to just trade all three of them off so they get something for them for picks and prospects and whatever else they can get. And that means that, I guess, is that good? Like, that's what I want to ask you. Is that good for guys like Mark Stone and Duchesne and Carlson if they get traded? Or is it, I know we've already talked about Duchesne and Carlson. Maybe we could focus on Mark Stone. Like, how does it affect your decision of where to draft him based on the fact that he signed this one-year deal and he's going to be UFA at the end of the year. You know, I'm not going to get caught up thinking. I, I generally, even in the weeks leading up to the deadline, I'm not thinking about how likely a player is to get traded and whether that's going to affect the trade value. I'm certainly not going to get hung up on it uh, in August or September. Too far away to start thinking about what it means for a player's value if they might get traded later in the season because they're rental. I mean, you could ask the same thing about Thomas Vanek. Uh, Ottawa is also in this weird situation where, you know, they they should probably be trading these guys for assets if they know they're not going to re-sign them, but maybe they still will re-sign them if there's an ownership change. Uh, But at the same time, they also might not want to trade these guys away for assets because if they do, uh, they end up with egg on their face as a team that goes further into the tank and gives Colorado a better and better pick because they're not winning games and there's really... uh, who knows? Who knows how Ottawa is going to want to play this situation? Regardless of how they do, I'm still pretty high on the trio that you mentioned uh, on all of their value to Shane Stone, Carlson. They're all super talented guys who are going to be impact players wherever they play, whether they're in the midst of a quality team that rents them at the deadline or as lone soldiers on a bottom feeder. I'm not concerned about how their location affects their ability to produce and maintain their fantasy relevance. Okay, fair enough. And yeah, the Sens, man, I can't believe that they're they're going to be so bad next year and they're not even going to have the, their pick, their first pick. Like Jack Hughes, he's supposed to be so good. They're not going to get him. It's crazy. Colorado must be laughing right now. Colorado should like go and trade for one of these players as a rental next year to help the Sens tank some more and have a better chance of getting this pick. It's, it's crazy. Okay, 
Let's end the show here, Brian. We've done it all. I think there's obviously still a few little small signings and trades that happen over the summer. We deemed them not fantasy relevant, not worth talking about. So I hopefully we've talked now over the summer series about every single move that was relevant and interesting over the offseason. And we will start to transition towards our preseason series. We've got a lot coming at you. So just a reminder of everything we've said earlier in the show. You can still get in. You've got one more day to get in on the early bird price for our first ever Fantasy Hockey Audio Almanac, a 31-chapter extravaganza. Check out keepingcarlson.com slash guide, and there's a video explaining it, and you have one day to get it for $15. After that, we're going to make a store where you'll have to buy it and whatever. But check, check it out if you're interested. Canadian dollars. Canadian dollars. So if you're an American, like, come on, it's, it's nothing. Our dollar is terrible. Uh, okay, then I mentioned if you want to become a patron of Keeping Carlson, hey, now's the time. Keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Sign up for the Cupful. Get in on the Facebook group. You could go and download all of our bonus episodes that we've released over the summer. Well, like all that stuff is still evergreen, right? Anything we talked about two months ago is probably still relevant now for the most part, I guess, unless there was like a trade or a free agent signing that affected it. So we've got a whole fun extra set of episodes for you to listen to if you're interested. Okay, uh, that's all I have to say. Let's cue. Okay, I'm not going to cue. Okay, follow us on Twitter at Kevin Carlson. Uh, five-star review on iTunes. Always very much appreciated. Now I'm going to do it, Brian. Cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? This episode was presented by Dabber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dabber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dabber Prospects, Corsica, Natural Stat Trick, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Brutal World, and Fantrax. Great job as always, Brian. By the way, if you're already a patron, you definitely should be signing up for the Cuffle, right? Like, you're already a patron. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I don't want to hear any excuse about how you're already in another league. It's always room for one more awesome league, okay? Uh, but great job as always, Brian. We'll catch you all with another episode next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Stein. <laughs>